Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, hello, Calvary. Good to see you today. Happy Mother's Day to all of our moms, and thank you for all the many ways we honor you today for the ways that you bless us and uh, not only gave us life, but give life to us. And so we thank you for that. Maybe you're a little curious. I was. Where, where does Mother's Day even come from? Like, what's the, what's the history of this? So a lady whose name was Anna Jarvis, and her mom would mention from time to time, we really should do something that honors mom for the way that mothers sacrifice for their families. This stuck with her. Her mom died in 1905, and then in 1908, this lady, Anna, started this remembrance called Mother's Day in order to be able to remember our moms, to thank them, to honor them. The first time it happened was at a church in West Virginia. 400 people showed up. Later, there was a gathering in Philadelphia where there were 15,000 people who came out to honor their parents. And this Anna Jarvis spoke at this event. When she spoke, she spoke for 70 minutes. She spoke for 70 minutes. Do you think I'm going to be outdone by a girl? Today I am. Yeah, it's Mother's Day. You got, you got lunch plans, and you've already been doing this. So, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Every year after that, 1908, 1909, 1910, like it increased in the number of people who were remembering Mother's Day. 1914, President Woodrow Wilson declared Mother's Day an official holiday, and we have made a big deal out of moms on this particular Sunday in May ever since. Here's a little bit of a heads up. Guys, it's Mother's Day. If you forgot, here's what you say. Oh, no, we're picking up the flowers now so they'll be fresh. That's what you say. Like, it was, it was your plan. You're welcome. Yeah, it was your plan all along. Truth is, um, this is a really fun day. It's a day where we can spend time together as a family, as gifts. It's, it's reminding moms that they're special, homemade cards and meals together. And yet the reality is, there's a whole other layer to Mother's Day. If there's any day when we're vulnerable, if there's any day when our losses or disappointments have a tendency to kind of rise up to the surface, it's Mother's Day. I don't know what kind of message you thought you'd come and hear today. My, my, and I don't know why God does this sometimes, but my guess is the one you're about to hear isn't the one you thought you'd hear. <laughs> But we're in this series where we're talking about the voices in our head, right? The things that, that, that come and, and the, those, those thoughts, those emotions, those challenges that we have at times. And I would say if there's a day when the voices seem to turn up the volume, Mother's Day is one of those days. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1 today. We're going to walk through a story in this scripture, and then when we get to the end of it, I want to share just a couple of principles with you that I, that I see kind of come to the surface as we walk through this. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, it says, There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. That's a lot of names. 
it's Mother's Day, so I wanted to impress you. So I practiced that, right? Because I want to make sure, want to make sure I made it through there. The other part that's interesting about that is, is when you're reading those verses in the Bible, do you start to fall asleep? Like you kind of get to name number three, and you're like, that's it. I'm done. I'm zoned out. Some of you are thankful. You usually don't zone out in me until the fourth or fifth scripture. Right here, verse one. You're done. You're reading this. You have a tendency to like read through these names, kind of start to check out a little bit. And then, and then you get to the beginning of verse two. This will wake you up. All these names. And then it says, he had two wives. Oh. Puts a little twist on the story, doesn't it? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you read about this from time to time. Sounds like it should be a TV show on the TLC network, doesn't it? But instead, this is in the Bible. This is Old Testament. In fact, what you find is that there's times when some of our, our patriarchs, some of the people that we, that we hold out as godly influence and examples in the Old Testament, there's polygamy in their story. And you ask the question, how does that make sense? Because in, in Genesis, God said that there'll be a husband and a wife and the two become one flesh. Like, like in the Ten Commandments, it says you should not commit adultery. If you go to the New Testament, when it talks about criteria for in le- being in leadership, and it says that a leader should be the husband of one wife. And so you ask the question, like, where, where does this come in? The Bible never endorses polygamy. It's, it's not in there. But what you find is that this is one of those cultural things that had a way to work its way into the story. Bible never says it was good, but like some things in our culture, there's these things that work in that become a part of our culture. And in some uh, circles in the ancient Near East, in Israel and in other cultures, this was a, a status symbol. It was a way of showing prestige because of the number of wives that you would have. You'll see it often in explanations about royalty. However, more often than not, it had a very practical purpose to it. When you read about this and this whole idea of polygamy, you'll see this in just a moment, but typically when it was practiced, if you, if you go back and you think about this time, when people were building their lives, they didn't have retirement accounts, right? They didn't have 401ks. They certainly didn't have life insurance. The only way that they could plan for their future was to have a family that would take care of them. So children, in particular sons, were very important if you were going to be able to sustain yourself into your senior years. You would have to have someone who would carry on your work. So if you're married and you have a wife and and the two of you are not having children, the term that the biblical stories use at times is that their, their womb is closed or that this person is barren. If that's your situation, you can't afford to not have a plan for the future. So you might look to get another wife to be in a place where you could produce children so that you'll be cared for in the future. Does that make sense? Look, the Bible never says, hey, this is a good thing. It was just kind of a cultural practice of that time. And you'll find that more often than not, when you read stories about individuals that had more than one wife, it it usually gets messy. One wife is enough. No, I mean that in a good way, in a good way. Wow. Happy Mother's Day. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. It says, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. In- interesting what you read there. He has these two wives. First one's name is Hannah. They're, they're listed twice, two different lines. And in the first line, you see it's Hannah listed first, 
And then Peninnah is listed second. Hannah is listed first, most likely because she was Elkanah's first wife, the first wife that he married. But then when you see the second listing, you see that Hannah is mentioned second that time, and Peninnah, actually Elkanah just called her Penny, and Penny's listed first. We don't know that, but maybe. Penny's listed first, we'll call her that. Penny's listed first, then Hannah, here's why. Because Penny had children, and Hannah didn't. Which means even though she was the second wife, she had moved into the position of status. She was the one who was fulfilling her duty to the family and to society, which raises a really interesting question for us. If you think about it, from the, from the time you are young, there's these pressures, these tensions that start to come on us. One of them is accomplishment, isn't it? Like you're supposed to produce something. You're supposed to accomplish something. Your life is supposed to matter. And we feel that. We feel that in our grades. We feel it in gym class and in athletics. We feel it in the choices we make after high school. We feel it in the pressure of what kind of job do you have and what kind of money do you make. And you have all these pressures of accomplishment. And what's interesting, with accomplishment usually comes competition as well. It's not just what do you produce, but do you produce more than somebody else? It's not enough for you to just be accomplished and effective. You need to be better than somebody else in this process. Look, the pressures of accomplishment and competition can easily become our identity. Like we watch and we see this happen in our society. How do we, how do we judge people so many times? By what they do and how good they are at it. And if you don't think that's true, that, that from a young age those things can begin to become our identity, the reality is we're only two verses into the, the book of 1 Samuel, and we've already determined Hannah's worth based on accomplishment and competition. Everything we know about her has to do with the fact that she's not done what she was expected to do, and somebody else did it better than her. And if you just think this is something that people wrestled with thousands of years ago, let me tell you about a, a story I read this week. I'm, I'm a fan of social media. I think it's a great tool, and, and whether it's Facebook or Twitter, whatever, whatever you might use, there's all these tools that we can use to communicate, and, and, and it's, it's a helpful thing. One of, one of the giants, if you're not familiar with social media, is, is, is Instagram, and you post pictures and are able to communicate in that way. I know a lot of you use it. There's an experiment that's happening in the nation of Canada with select Instagram users that they're trying to, trying to figure out. If you're familiar with it, like I might post a picture and you might look at it and go, hey, I like that picture. And so like you double tap it or you hit the little heart and then, and then it would show a like. And then every time somebody likes it, you got a counter on your picture and you can know and I can know how many people liked my picture. And sometimes when you're scrolling through this, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, sometimes when you're scrolling through, you see something that has a lot of likes and you think, oh, wow, look at that. I probably should like that too. And that's kind of what's going on. Well, Instagram is experimenting with something, with some select users, where you can still post a picture, but the counter that shows how many likes are there isn't there anymore. Like, and so if you post a picture and I look at it, I can like it, but I don't know if you have one like or a million likes. And if you want to know how many likes you have, it'll list everybody that liked it, but I think you can like count them out. You just don't see it right there. Interesting what one user has said that's been testing this. She said, personally, I love not seeing the like count. Feels a bit weird to say, but I've stopped comparing myself to bigger accounts. I've also been more personal with the things I actually like versus what everyone else is liking. 
This feels like more of what Instagram should be rather than an advertisement of ourselves on our page. Isn't that interesting? We live in a culture where so many of us are putting out advertisements of ourselves, and this begins to have an effect on us. One of the, one of the people behind this at Instagram has said this, the thing I remind myself and others is that there will never be enough likes, followers, or validation. Isn't that true? When you get them, there's never enough. It becomes something we reach for. In fact, here's how he described it. He says, there'll never be enough likes, followers, or validations. Listen to this. Social media engagement is digital cocaine. Isn't that an interesting statement? So the most productive thing to do is physically disengage for various periods throughout the day. Last statement he makes. Always keep in mind that all of this social media nonsense is an imaginary thing we created from thin air only a couple of years ago. Try not to take it too seriously. And that really is an interesting perspective. I think there's some truth to that. And one of the things that is true is that all of this social media stuff, it's just a few years old, really, in the big scheme of things. But the reality is that the issues that it sometimes brings up, accomplishment, competition, they're centuries old. And I can show that to you in the life of a lady from the ancient Near East several thousand years ago in a place we now know as Israel, when right there, front and center in her life, was the reminder that she faced daily of her lack of accomplishment and the competition she was facing. Verse three. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship. This is Elkanah, their husband. Went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. So this is Jewish practice. It was expected if you were a Jewish male, and oftentimes you take your family with you, that you would go several times a year and that you would offer these sacrifices, not at the temple in Jerusalem that we sometimes talk about, but this is before this. So this is at a tabernacle place in a place called Shiloh. And they would go, they would offer these sacrifices. Verse four, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. So here's what that meant. Elkanah or anybody who was taking a sacrifice would take it and would present it, and and part of it, a portion of it, would be burned. That was the sacrifice part. A portion of it would go to the priest because the, the Mosaic law had made provision so that these priests would receive something so that they could be cared for, so that they'd have provision, if you will, as a result of this, and then a portion of it would be sent back with the person who brought the sacrifice. Now, it was kind of a unique thing. Not on a daily basis would people in that day and time have meat with their meals. So when he came back and had meat with the meal, it was, it was kind of a special treat. And so he shows up at home with Penny and the kids and says, hey, it's like Thanksgiving here, right? It's kind of a big deal. It's special. It's a treat. So he brings a portion back to his wife, Peninnah, and her children, verse 5, But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. I went to college at a place called Central Bible College and two of the faculty members who just had a huge impact on on the students that were there, my life included, were, were Forrest and Virginia Arnold. Forrest Arnold was this giant of a man. I think he was like 6'5", 6'6". Virginia was just this tiny little lady, 
And um, they, they had been married for years. I would say they were probably in their mid to late 60s when I was a student there. Brother Arnold had played college basketball. They were just like really special, special people. And I can remember in one of the classes, he told the story of how like every night before they would go to bed, you know, they would have just a few moments and they would get hungry for a snack. Where are my snackers? Do you know what I'm talking about? Right, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, man, I need a little something before I go to bed. And, and typically for them, it would be popcorn. Where are my popcorn people? You know what I'm talking about? All right, we're in a movie theater. All right, yeah. Okay. I see that hand, sister. Popcorn. Okay. May the popcorn blessing be on you. Right there. And so here's what he said he would do. When he would pop the popcorn, he would then have two bowls. And he would pour them equally into the bowls. And then he would make sure that he would give a little extra in one bowl. And then when he took it out, guess who got the extra? Not this giant of a man, but this tiny lady. And he always wanted to make sure that she knew she got a little more because he loved her. Isn't that sweet? Elkanah rolls back in after the sacrifice. He drops some food off for Penny and the kids. And then he goes over to Hannah's and says, here's a double portion because I love you. It's beautiful, isn't it? And there she is in her despair and in her loss and in her focus so much of her life on what she did not have that I wonder if she truly was able to appreciate how great that gesture of love was. I think he saw something in her that maybe she wasn't even able to see for herself. There are times when there are people in your world who are going through something where they not only need your love, they need a double portion of it. They need you to be willing in that moment, in that season, to give extra to them. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful picture of love there. And then it gets weird. It says Elkanah gave her a double portion and the Lord had closed her womb. I'll be honest with you, that bugs me. Because the very thing that's giving her so much trouble, the very reason that she's struggling with voices in her head is because the Lord has done something. I don't like that, do you? I mean, I wrestle with that a little bit. And I, I ask God, why is that there? Why, why does it say that? And here's the thing. that When you look at this story, when you read the rest, one of the things that you come to understand is there's more going on here than what you see. That God has a plan that he's playing out. And if you're familiar with the story, you know how this ends up. God's doing something that would not have happened if they had had life just end up the way they thought it was going to. But God is at work here, and the reality is that when it says that the Lord had closed her womb, that's not an act of cruelty. That's not an act of, of, of unfairness. It's an act of love on God's part. Recognize this, that sometimes God is working through our disappointment. Sometimes there's something that's happening, even in the midst of our disappointment. You might look at certain things in your life, certain things in your family, certain choices that are ahead of you, and you might be disappointed in those things, and you've got to realize you might not know it till the end of the story, but God is working something out 
even in the midst of our disappointment. And here's what's ironic to me in that verse. In that verse, it talks about what her husband had given to her and what her God had withheld from her, and both of those are an act of love. Both of those were somebody saying, I see something special that I'm pouring out in you. Realize that sometimes, even in our disappointment, God is working something out. Verse six. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. How many of you just had somebody's face pop in your head? (laughs) Right? You know that feeling. Somebody that's just provoking, irritating, unless you're like, Super holy or something. Verse seven, (laughs) this went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Those Those are sad verses, aren't they? You know, we're in this series about the voices in our head, and we're talking about the thoughts and the emotions that we wrestle with. And I had to ask myself, in this story right here, what's, what's the voice in Hannah's head? I, I interacted with some people, just kind of took like an informal kind of poll as we've been preparing for this series. We even, we even posted it on Facebook one day, like, like, what would you like to hear about as we talk about this? And we've talked about, I've had people suggest all kinds of emotions and, and thoughts that we wrestle with. The thing that I've heard the most and the thing that has kind of come out first is people say, you know what I think would be good to talk about is just sometimes I just don't feel good enough. Sometimes I feel like I don't have what it takes. Sometimes I feel like I'm... I'm just not enough. Isn't that the voice that was in Hannah's head here? That her rival would provoke her? And I'm sure there was this thought, life often leaves us wondering if we are good enough. Life life often has us thinking, can I do this? Can I cut this? Am I gonna be able to make this? Am I good enough? The reality is we, we all make mistakes all the time. The nation of Australia is in the process of of releasing new currency. They're kind of being praised for this because they're using this high-tech polymer stuff to be able to to put this currency out that is almost impossible to counterfeit. So other nations are watching, they're learning, they're practicing their techniques. They just released, watch this, 46 million of these $50 Australian bills into circulation And I think it was just last week that somebody recognized that on all these bills, there's a typo. (laughs) 46 million of them. Guess what word they spelled wrong? I think this is hilarious. They spelled the word responsibility wrong. Isn't that great? (laughs) Mistakes happen to the best of us. Things happen in life to the best of us. And then we hear those voices. You're not good enough. You're a failure. You're incapable. You're disappointing. You've missed all those expectations placed on you. You've let down the ones you love. You are second class to another who has done so much better than you. You're overwhelmed because you look at it all and you know you can't do it. You're known more for what you mess up than what you get right. And these are those voices that start going through our heads. It's interesting in those two verses we just read, Penny's name's not mentioned at all. Did you notice that? Instead, every time, both times she's mentioned, she's called 
her rival. What a, what a term. That one who is against her rival. Do you have a rival? Like some, some of you might. You, you might immediately have somebody who comes to mind that every time you're around them, you're provoked. Like every time you're around them, you're irritated. And maybe they even like, like go to great lengths to let you know that you're not everything that you could or should be. For some of you, there's a person in your mind that comes to your mind that you have as a rival. I'm gonna guess that for all of us though, it might not be a person, but it's an ideal that we have in our head. Like there's something that keeps coming back to our head and reminds us you're not good enough. You're not as good as. You can't do this. Or there's these thoughts that come in. It's this voice that keeps coming in our head. And we wrestle with a lot of these same thoughts, a lot of these same challenges. And for some of us, that voice becomes really clear on a day like today. That on a day like Mother's Day, there's this reminder of our loss and of our disappointments, of things that we once had that we don't have anymore or things that we wish we had that, that maybe we'll never have. And there's a pain that comes in this. There's a disappointment. I told you about Anna Jarvis. She was basically the mother of Mother's Day. She's the one that, that invented and promoted and started this holiday. 1914, the, the president confers that this is a national holiday. And 30 years later, the magazine Newsweek at that time did an article and talked about how she felt about Mother's Day 30 years later. And she was frustrated at that point. Said never did she intend for the observance to become the, and here's a quote, burdensome, wasteful, expensive gift day as other holidays had become by the early 20th century. She was frustrated because she had never intended it for, I've heard people refer to it as a Hallmark holiday, right? She never intended for it to become this commercial thing. It wasn't what she planned for it to be. And let me get something real straight here. Guys, that's no excuse. Don't you dare say, Chad said, I don't have to do it. It's just a waste of money. Chad did not say that. And I'm not coming to your house to clean this up, all right? I didn't say it. But Anna was ticked. To the point that this article in 1944 said she had filed 33 lawsuits against people trying to prove that what they were doing with Mother's Day was never what she intended for it to be. Why? Because life has a tendency to go in directions we never intended for it to go, doesn't it? And here's Hannah wrestling with all these things. Verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are, look at this phrase, why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Typical guy, right? Isn't that, uh, he's a little clueless there. I mean, you, you get what he's trying to say. But there's, there's a beautiful tone in what he's saying to her here. I don't pick it up as judgmental. Pick it up as him saying, Hannah, why are you crying? Don't you see all that you have? And I know, the Bible's very clear. It says that no one else can know the pain that's in another person's heart. But it's interesting that the choice of words there. He asks her, why are you downhearted? And we don't necessarily use that phrase, but it's an interesting phrase. And if you unpack the, 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 the Hebrew words that are there, it has the idea, he's saying to her, why is your heart bad? And I don't think he's saying it because he's judging her. 
I think he's saying it because he's concerned about her. He's saying, Hannah, look, I, I know you're frustrated, and I know you're disappointed, and I know that things haven't gone the way that you wanted them to go, but, but Hannah, I see that this is affecting your heart. Like there's something coming into your heart of frustration and a disappointment and a bitterness and a hopelessness, and it's affecting your heart, and I'm, I'm concerned for you. Hannah, your, your heart is showing the wear and tear of what's going on in your life, and I love you. I'm worried about you. Why is your heart bad? I love it that he, he had the courage to, to call this out in her. And to say to her, look, there's something in your life that's not quite right. And I'd like to see you fix it. Do you have anybody in your life that can do that? Like somebody who can, who can just look at you and say, you might want to fix something in your heart. This, this might be a good day for some of you to hear that. Maybe for you to hear it from, from this place today. But for some of you, maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a disappointment, maybe it's a frustration. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying it hasn't been painful. I'm not saying it hasn't defined a portion of your life. I'm just saying, be careful with your heart because there's so much more. Verse nine, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, so this is one of those religious festivals that they would go to, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost to the Lord's house. Interesting just kind of details just to kind of paint the picture for you. Typically, people would sit on the floor at events like this. So Eli's in a chair because he's the high priest. He, he's the one that's the closest to God, and he kind of is supposed to deliver God to the people, right? And so that's his, his role. So he gets to sit in the chair, kind of status, plus they're, they're honoring him because he's, he's older in, in his years. If you don't know his story, I, read the next couple of chapters. It's really fascinating and tragic, actually. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. She does something interesting here with her prayer. She makes what, what the Old Testament would refer to as a vow. She says, God, I will do this if you will do that. And that phrase that's, that's kind of weird to us where it says no razor on his head it refers to what's called a Nazarite vow. You read about it when you read the story of Samson in the Old Testament. And it has the idea of someone being totally committed to God. And she's saying, God, if you'll give me a son, I'll totally give it. To, I'll give that child to you. We do that sometimes, don't we? We bargain with God. God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll do anything. Lord, you help me pass this test. I promise I'll be a missionary in Africa, right? You think that way. Or you make these promises. You have no intention of keeping them. You're just trying to bargain with God to get what you want in that moment. I don't think that's what she's doing here. There's something sincere, and if you read the story, you'll, you'll find out that she backs it up. I think she's recognized in this moment something powerful about prayer. She's realized that prayer is a recognition of our great need and our great God. Where I recognize, God, I can't do this by myself. God, I'm stuck in this place without you, and you're the only one who can. And in this moment, God, I come to you with my great need because you're the great God. 
When I read this, I was a little bit convicted because I just, I don't want to get used to praying easy, comfortable, safe prayers, right? I, I have a tendency at times, you probably do too, that my prayers just get kind of casual. I like, I like to think of God sometimes like he's my digital assistant. Anybody boss Siri around? You got an iPhone? You call out her name and she answers. Anybody seen those Amazon Echoes? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, I just say Alexa, and then I boss her around. You might not know this, but my mother-in-law's name is Alexa. <laughs> Times it's therapeutic. No. Here's the deal. Do we ever like that with God? God, I need this. God, do that. We get a little too casual in our prayers. When actually, what we need to recognize is that when we come to God, we are people of great need who come to a great God. So Hannah brings this prayer to God, and then watch what happens. 1 Samuel 1, verse 15, or excuse me, uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, this is the high priest, right, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you gonna stay drunk? Put away your wine. He's got a real pastoral presence about him, that guy Eli, doesn't he? <laughs> Look, if you're hurting, know this, this might be good for you to hear. People see the outside, but God sees the inside. People don't always understand what you're going through. They can't, let's just be honest. Even more, sometimes there's a, you see an insensitivity in Eli's life, which actually, if you read the rest of the story, kind of plays out in his demise. And know this, that even when your heart is right, people may still assume you are wrong. That's good for you to know sometimes, especially in seasons when you're hurting. Look at what she says, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 15. He says, you're drunk. She says, not so, my Lord. Hannah replied, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I, I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, and this is a big deal, right? Because he's the high priest, right? If anybody has a hotline to God, it's this dude. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She says, I'm not drunk. I haven't been pouring wine. I've been pouring out my heart. And I've been telling God where I'm at. And it's powerful because then this high priest says to her, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. Verse 18. And watch, watch what happens now. Because she's just, in a certain sense, heard the, the, the word of the Lord. Right? The, the high priest has just spoken a powerful word to her. Verse 18. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. That's good news, isn't it? Right? She went from so much despair, and now her face is no longer downcast. Now, I'm sure that the meal helped. Some of you would say amen to that right now. But I also think it's because she heard the word of the Lord. Like, like, she had someone speak a word of encouragement to her, and it changed things. Know this. The promises of God changed the state of our heart. 
We'll get to this in just a moment, but hang on to that truth. The promises of God can change the state of our heart. Watch what happens here. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. His name means heard of God. And this is a good story, a good way to end this story, isn't it? That this lady who had nothing now has something. This person who had longed for so much, God now has answered her prayer. She didn't have a child, and now she has a child. And this is a beautiful truth of God providing as she sought for him. This is really cool when you see this. In fact, and if you read the rest of the story, read, read chapter two, one of the things you find out is she keeps her word. She takes him when he's old enough. She takes Samuel back to Eli in Shiloh at the house of the Lord and says, here, you raise him. I promised God that I would give this child back to him to serve him and to know him. And so Samuel basically becomes an intern, an apprentice under Eli. He lives there his life and grows up in that place. Hannah goes back and she and Elkanah have five more kids, three sons and two daughters. She gave God her first and her best and God blessed her with so much more. There's a principle in that, isn't there? But understand this, there's joy in this story. What started with so much despair ends with joy. I like stories like that, don't you? Like that's a good thing. Let me stop here for just a moment. One of my hopes and my prayers, mom, is that you'll find in this, this Mother's Day joy in motherhood. Thank you for what you do. Look, I've, I've thought about this a little bit in the last couple days as I've been working on this, this message and thinking this through. When it comes to mothers in your life, I win. I don't know if it's a competition, but my mom is amazing. And that's all I'll say because she's sitting here and you know, you know that kind of thing, right? And I joke about my mother-in-law, but she's awesome. Amazing woman of God. And my kids got the very best mom there is. And that's a powerful thing. And so why I say that is because when I've watched, I've seen the value and the influence of a godly mom who invests in her kids and in her grandkids. And whether you realize it or not, that investment doesn't just happen in your home. It affects everybody else in the orbit of your kids as well. Right? You have influence, mom. And I know you might be tired. And I know there's times when you're overwhelmed. And I know you might be lonely. And I know for some of you, the struggle is real in the challenges that you face in the workplace and at home. Some of you are doing this whole thing by yourself. And I want to encourage you in this today. God is a God who comes alongside of you and can strengthen you and bring joy to you in the calling that he's given to you. In fact, I want to I end this. I know this, this probably isn't the Mother's Day message you expected, and it's probably a little heavy in some ways. I want to encourage you before we wrap up here with three things that I see in this story that I think are good for us to highlight before we wrap up. Some encouraging words for the overwhelmed. Look, if, if you've said... I don't think I'm enough for this. I don't think I have what it takes. I, the accomplishment and competition are too much for me. If you're wrestling with that, let me throw three things your way. Here's the first one. Number one, very simple. God hears your prayers. We have a great God who knows your great need. And when you come to him, he hears you. Look, remember this. The Bible often refers God to a parent. Now, I've seen this. It, it, it's very different parenting today, even than when we had a baby 18 years ago. Right, when we had a baby, we didn't have all the technology that you have now. We, we had a little like monitor in, in our room where we could hear our kids if they cried. But now you got cameras, right, parents? And you got these cameras that you can watch them and you can see when they're in their cribs being bad, you know, this kind of thing. 
You've got monitors that you can put on your, your children and actually know like what their heart rates are. Like you, it's cool, all these tools that you have. We didn't have those things. All we had was stealth, right? You had to know just how to turn that doorknob, what places not to step on the floor, right? Am I right? How to open that door just enough to see what was going on in that room, whether you needed to get involved or not. I got busted nine out of 10 times. Daddy. Right? But as a parent, you're watching because there's times when you need to wait and there's times when you need to step in. There's times when you need to respond right away and there's times when you need to go, I'm waiting for you to go to sleep. Can I get an amen? Amen. Right? It's not that you're absent. You're always there watching. It just might not be time to act yet. God is your heavenly father. Sometimes when we pray, we wonder, is he even listening? He's listening. And he's watching. And he knows just the right time to act. He knows what he's working out in you. He knows what he's working out around you. And what's powerful is all this changes for Hannah when she comes face to face with the high priest. Right? All this changes when she interacts with him. Now, here's the good news. You don't have an earthly high priest anymore. Like you don't have to go to some place like Shiloh so you can interact with someone who might bring you a word from God. I'm not your high priest. You wanna know who your high priest is? Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That's a good word, isn't it? You can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That's the best seat in the house. You can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. A few weeks ago, I went to a concert with a couple of friends, and and my one friend had had bought the tickets, so I didn't know where we were sitting. We just had our tickets, and, and I'm following these guys. We're like marching. We're walking past all these people. We're moving as we're going along. And the further we walk, we keep moving past all these people. And I keep thinking to myself, where are we going? Like, and we kept moving, and we kept getting closer and closer. And the closer we were getting, I was like, these must be good seats. These must be really good seats. And we got there. We had what I thought were the best seats in the house. Like, it was awesome. I wish I'd known that beforehand, because as I walked past all those other people, I'd have showed them my ticket. Look where I'm going. I'm walking right past you with confidence because I got a ticket to the best seat in the house. You know what that passage says? It says when you pray, you pray with confidence because your father hears you and has given you the authority to go right before the throne of God. Jesus hears you. God hears you when you pray. Now, that's important for you to know because you're not going to like number two. (laughs) Number one is God hears us when we pray. Number two, life is not about getting what you want. Like you can get confused with this story. I got confused with this story at first. I thought this story was about the fact that somebody didn't have something, so then they sought God, and then they got something. Sometimes that happens, and that's cool, and we believe that God meets all our needs. Amen, right? That's not what this story is about, though. This story isn't just about Hannah getting what she wanted 
after her heart was broken. This story is about God doing what was in his will to do all along. God does something through this. God works something out in this way that he couldn't have done in any other way. And if you read the rest of this book and know about the life of Samuel, he leads and even rescues at times his people. He became a leader that he never would have been if he had been born in any other way. The reality and the truth is that God has a plan and he's working something out in your life. And oftentimes, we have a tendency to waste our pain, or we have a tendency to disconnect in the hard times. And can I tell you this? We are to look for what God is doing in us and not just what God is doing for us. You ever been in that place where you're so focused on what God can do for you that you miss out on the fact that he's trying to do something in you? And you need to say, God, I trust you in this situation. I believe that you have a plan. Look, don't waste your pain. And don't throw away your frustration. Trust God in the midst of this and find hope in the places where you are and the things that you're praying for. Believe that God hears you when you pray. Believe that he has a plan. It's not just about you getting what you want. It's about God working out his plan in your life. And here's the third one. Here's the tendency that's gonna happen is that you and I in the midst of our lives are gonna have times where we're gonna hear that voice in our head that says you are not enough. You don't have what it takes. And that voice is going to come. And if we're all honest, we've heard it at some point and we'll hear it again. But I think there's something powerful. There's a change that happens when Hannah hears the word of the Lord. There's a power that happens when you stand on the promises of God. So third thing, can I encourage you? Shut down the defeating voices in your head with God's truth. Because there are voices that want to come and speak defeat to you. And you need to strengthen yourself or push things out of your life with God's word in those moments. There's a, there's a history in my family of some deterioration of vision as we get older. It's just, it's just something that appears to be hereditary. So I asked my doctor about that, my eye doctor, and he says, you know what would be good? Why don't you take this vitamin that's known to help strengthen your eyes? Guess what I take every day? <laughs> I take that because there's something weak in me that I want to strengthen. Not too long ago, I had a... Had a cold, whatever kind of infection. My doctor said, here's an antibiotic. Why don't you take this? Because it'll get rid of something that's in you that shouldn't be there. Look, I'm not afraid when I still know that something's weak in me. I'm not afraid to put something else in me to strengthen me, right? Vitamins are good. And when there's something that's not good in me, I'm not afraid to put something else in me that will push that out. Antibiotics can help us, right? What about God's word? Because there are things that are weak in you that need strengthened. And there are things that get into our system that need forced out. And you know what God has given to us so that we can put it back into us? Are the truths of his word. So can I encourage you, when you hear those voices, here's what you do. You put God's word in instead. Instead of trying to reason with those voices or argue with those voices or rationalize with those voices, why don't you just shut them down with scripture? So when those voices in your head begin to tell you that you don't really matter, you pull out Ephesians 2.10 and you remind them that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when there are those moments when you wonder if you have enough strength, that's when you go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, and you remind those voices that I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
And in those times when you feel defeated, because those voices in your head are going to tell you, you don't have enough, you don't have what it takes, you 1 Corinthians 15, 57 them. And you say to them, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And can I tell you this? Some of you are going to need a little help from Philippians 1, 6 before you even get out of the parking lot. You're going to turn on a Conant Street. <laughs> And you're gonna have this voice in your head that's gonna say, this is not gonna work for you. I mean, you can hear that, but you're still not enough. You're still not gonna be able to make it. You still don't have what it takes. And that's when you say, I am being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When those voices get in your head, you shut them down with the word of God because that's where we find life, and truth, and hope is in God and his word. So I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would please. And I wanna pray for you today. I wanna pray for those of you that needed to hear this message today. And moms, I wanna pray for you as well. And Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. Thanks for your word that reminds us that even in those times when we, we, we tell ourselves and we hear those voices that say we're not good enough, we find our hope and our confidence in you, that you are a great God who comes to us in our great need, and that you know how just to strengthen us, that you hear our prayers, that you're working out a plan even when we can't see it. And we stand on the truth that you have created us special and you will give us strength that our victory is in you and that you're working something out in our lives that you're gonna bring to completion as we trust in you. And Lord, I thank you for the moms today. Lord, I pray that for the tired mom that you'd give her strength. Pray that for the lonely mom that you would come alongside of her and let her know your presence. I pray for the mom that's excited as she looks down the road that you would show her your grace and your strength. I pray for the mom that, that this is a hard day. Would you let her know your comfort and your guidance? Lord, we look to you in this day. We ask and we pray that you would pour out your blessing on those that, that are leading our homes and families, that are mothering us. Give them wisdom in these seasons of their lives, we pray. Thanks, Lord, for your word. Help us this week to live it out as we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.